Book Seven, Chapters One through Eight of On War, Volumes Two and Three, by Carl von Clausewitz, translated by J. J. Graham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Book Seven, The Attack. Chapter One, The Attack in Relation to the Defence. If two ideas form an exact logical antithesis, that is to say, if the one is the complement of the other, then in fact each one is implied in the other, and when the limited power of our mind is insufficient to apprehend both at once, and by the mere antithesis to recognise in the one perfect conception the totality of the other also, still at all events the one always throws on the other a strong and in many parts a sufficient light. Thus we think the first chapter on the defence throws a sufficient light on all the points of the attack which it touches upon. But it is not so thorough in respect of every point. The train of thought could nowhere be carried to a finality. It is therefore natural that where the opposition of ideas does not lie so immediately at the root of the conception, as in the first chapters, all that can be said about the attack does not follow directly from what has been said on the defence. An alteration of our point of view brings us nearer to the subject, and it is natural for us to observe at this closer point of view, that which escaped observation at our former standpoint. What is thus perceived will, therefore, be the complement of our former train of thought, and it will not unfrequently happen that what is said on the attack will throw a new light on the defence. In treating of the attack, we shall, of course, very frequently have the same subjects before us with which our attention has been occupied in the defence, but we have no intention nor would it be consistent with the nature of the thing to adopt the usual plan of works on engineering and in treating of the attack to circumvent or upset all that we have found of positive value in the defence by showing that against every means of defence there is an infallible method of attack. The defence has its strong points and weak ones. If the first are not insurmountable, still they can be overcome at a disproportionate price, and that must remain true from whatever point of view we look at it or we get involved in a contradiction. Further, it is not our intention thoroughly to review the reciprocal action of the means. Each means of defence suggests a means of attack, but this is often so evident that there is no occasion to transfer oneself from our standpoint in treating of the defence to a fresh one for the attack in order to perceive it. The one issues from the other of itself. Our object is, in each subject, to set forth the peculiar relations of the attack so far as they do not directly come out of the defence, and this mode of treatment must necessarily lead us to many chapters to which there are no corresponding ones in the defence. End of chapter 1 Chapter 2 Nature of the Strategical Attack We have seen that the defensive in war generally, therefore also the strategic defensive, is no absolute state of expectancy in warding off, therefore no completely passive state, but that it is a relative state, and consequently impregnated more or less with offensive principles. In the same way the offensive is no homogeneous whole, but incessantly mixed up with the defensive. But there is this difference between the two, that a defensive without an offensive return blow cannot be conceived, that this return blow is a necessary constituent part of the defensive, whilst in the attack the blow or act is in itself one complete idea. 
The defence in itself is not necessarily a part of the attack, but time and space to which it is inseparably bound import into it the defensive as a necessary evil. For in the first place, the attack cannot be continued uninterruptedly up to its conclusion. It must have stages of rest, and in these stages, when its action is neutralised, the state of defence steps in of itself. In the second place, the space which a military force in its advance leaves behind it, and which is essential to its existence, cannot always be covered by the attack itself, but must be specially protected. The act of attack in war, but particularly in that branch which is called strategy, is therefore a perpetual alternating and combining of attack and defence. But the latter is not to be regarded as an effectual preparation for attack, as a means by which its force is heightened, that is to say, not as an active principle, but purely as a necessary evil, as the retarding weight arising from the specific gravity of the mass. It is its original sin, its seed of mortality. We say a retarding weight, because if the defence does not contribute to strengthen the attack, it must tend to diminish its effect by the very loss of time which it represents. But now may not this defensive element, which is contained in every attack, have over it a positively disadvantageous influence? If we suppose the attack is the weaker, the defence the stronger form of war, it seems to follow that the latter cannot act in a positive sense prejudicially on the former. For as long as we have sufficient force for the weaker form, we should have more than enough for the stronger. In general, that is, as regards the chief part, this is true. In its detail we shall analyse it more precisely in the chapter on the culminating point of victory. But we must not forget that the superiority of the strategic defence is partly founded in this, and that the attack itself cannot take place without a mixture of defence and of a defensive of a very weak kind. What the assailant has to carry about with him of this kind are its worst elements. With respect to these, that which holds good of the whole in a general sense cannot be maintained, and therefore it is conceivable that the defensive may act upon the attack positively as a weakening principle. It is just in these moments of weak defensive in the attack that the positive action of the offensive principle in the defensive should be introduced. During the twelve hours' rest which usually succeeds a day's work, what a difference there is between the situations of the defender in his chosen, well-known and prepared position and that of the assailant occupying a bivouac into which, like a blind man, he has groped his way, or during a longer period of rest, required to obtain provisions and to await reinforcements, etc., when the defender is close to his fortresses and supplies, whilst the situation of the assailant, on the other hand, is like that of a bird on a tree. Every attack must lead to a defence. What is to be the result of that defence depends on circumstances. These circumstances may be very favourable if the enemy's forces are destroyed, but they may be very unfavourable if such is not the case. Although this defensive does not belong to the attack itself, its nature and effects must react on the attack, and must take part in determining its value. The deduction from this view is that in every attack the defensive, which is necessarily an inherent feature in the same, must come into consideration in order to see clearly the disadvantages to which it is subject, and to be prepared for them. On the other hand, in another respect the attack is always in itself one and the same. But the defensive has gradations according as the principle of expectancy approaches to an end. This begets forms which differ essentially from each other, 
as has been developed in the chapter on the forms of defence as the principle of the attack is strictly active and the defensive which connects itself with it is only a dead weight there is therefore not the same kind of difference in it no doubt in the energy employed in the attack in the rapidity and force of the blow there may be a very great difference but only a difference in degree not in form it is quite possible to conceive even that the assailant may choose a defensive form the better to attain his object for instance that he may choose a strong position that he may be attacked there but such instances are so rare that we do not think it necessary to dwell upon them in our grouping of ideas and facts which are always founded on the practical we may therefore say that there are no such gradations in the attack as those which present themselves in the defence lastly as a rule the extent of the means of attack consists of the armed force only of course we must add to these the fortresses for if in the vicinity of the theatre of war they have a decided influence on the attack but this influence gradually diminishes as the attack advances and it is conceivable that in the attack its own fortresses never can play such an important part as in the defence in which they often become objects of primary importance the assistance of the people may be supposed in cooperation with the attack in those cases in which the inhabitants of the country are better disposed towards the invader of the country than they are to their own army finally the assailant may also have allies but then they are only the result of special or accidental relations not an assistance proceeding from the nature of the aggressive although therefore in speaking of the defence we have reckoned fortresses popular insurrections and allies as available means of resistance we cannot do the same in the attack there they belong to the nature of the thing here they only appear rarely and for the most part accidentally end of chapter two chapter three of the objects of strategical attack the overthrow of the enemy is the aim in war destruction of the hostile military forces the means both in attack and defence by the destruction of the enemy's military force the defensive is led on to the offensive the offensive is led by it to the conquest of territory territory is therefore the object of the attack but that need not be a whole country it may be confined to a part a province a strip of country a fortress all these things have a substantial value for their political importance in treating for peace whether they are retained or exchanged the object of the strategic attack is therefore conceivable in an infinite number of gradations from the conquest of the whole country down to that of some insignificant place as soon as this object is obtained and the attack ceases the defensive commences we may therefore represent to ourselves the strategic attack as a distinctly limited unit but it is not so if we consider the matter practically that is in accordance with actual phenomena practically the movements of the attack that is its views and measures often glide just as imperceptibly into the defence as the plans of the defence into the offensive it is seldom or at all events not always that a general lays down positively for himself what he will conquer he leaves that dependent on the course of events his attack often leads him further than he had intended after rest more or less he often gets renewed strength without our being obliged to make out of this two quite different acts at another time he is brought to a standstill sooner than he expected without however giving up his intentions and changing to a real defensive we see therefore that if the successful defence may change imperceptibly into the offensive 
so on the other hand an attack may in like manner change into a defence these gradations must be kept in view in order to avoid making a wrong application of what we have to say of the attack in general end of chapter three chapter four decreasing force of the attack this is one of the principal points in strategy on its right valuation in the concrete depends our being able to judge correctly what we are able to do the decrease of absolute power arises one through the object of the attack the occupation of the enemy's country this generally commences first after the first decision but the attack does not cease upon the first decision two through the necessity imposed on the attacking army to guard the country in its rear in order to preserve its line of communication and means of subsistence three through losses in action and through sickness four distance of the various depots of supplies and reinforcements five sieges and blockades of fortresses six relaxation of efforts seven secession of allies but frequently in opposition to these weakening causes there may be many others which contribute to strengthen the attack it is clear at all events that a net result can only be obtained by comparing these different quantities thus for example the weakening of the attack may be partly or completely compensated or even surpassed by the weakening of the defensive this last is a case which rarely happens we cannot always bring into the comparison any more forces than those in the immediate front or at decisive points not the whole of the forces in the field different examples the french in austria and prussia in russia the allies in france the french in spain end of chapter four chapter five culminating point of the attack the success of the attack is the result of a present superiority of force it being understood that the moral as well as physical forces are included in the preceding chapter we have shown that the power of the attack gradually exhausts itself possibly at the same time the superiority may increase but in most cases it diminishes the assailant buys up prospective advantages which are to be turned to account hereafter in negotiations for peace but in the meantime he has to pay down on the spot for them a certain amount of his military force if a preponderance on the side of the attack although thus daily diminishing is still maintained until peace is concluded the object is attained there are strategic attacks which have led to an immediate peace but such instances are rare the majority on the contrary lead only to a point at which the forces remaining are just sufficient to maintain a defensive and to wait for peace beyond that point the scale turns there is a reaction the violence of such a reaction is commonly much greater than the force of the blow this we call the culminating point of the attack as the object of the attack is the possession of the enemy's territory it follows that the advance must continue till the superiority is exhausted this cause therefore impels us towards the ultimate object and may easily lead us beyond it if we reflect upon the number of the elements of which an equation of the forces in action is composed we may conceive how difficult it is in many cases to determine which of two opponents has the superiority on his side often all hangs on the silken thread of imagination everything then depends on discovering the culminating point by fine tact of judgment here we come upon a seeming contradiction the defence is stronger than the attack therefore we should think that the latter can never lead us too far for as long as the weaker form remains strong enough for what is required the stronger form ought to be still more so footnote here follows in the manuscript this note 
development on this subject after book three in the essay on the culminating point of victory under this title in an envelope endorsed various dissertations as materials an essay has been found which appears to be a revision of the chapter here only sketched it will be found at the end of the seventh book editress's note footnote ends end of chapter five chapter six destruction of the enemy's armies the destruction of the enemy's armed forces is the means to the end and what is meant by this the price it costs different points of view which are possible in respect to the subject one only to destroy as many as the object of the attack requires two or as many on the whole as is possible three the sparing of our own forces as the principal point of view for this may again be carried so far that the assailant does nothing towards the destruction of the enemy's force except when a favourable opportunity offers which may also be the case with regard to the object of the attack as already mentioned in the third chapter the only means of destroying the enemy's armed force is by combat but this may be done in two ways one directly two indirectly through a combination of combats if therefore the battle is the chief means still it is not the only means the capture of a fortress or of a portion of territory is in itself really a destruction of the enemy's force and it may also lead to a still greater destruction and therefore also be an indirect means the occupation of an undefended strip of territory therefore in addition to the value which it has as a direct fulfilment of the end may also reckon as a destruction of the enemy's force as well the manoeuvring so as to draw an enemy out of a district of country which is occupied is somewhat similar and must therefore only be looked at from the same point of view and not as a success of arms properly speaking these means are generally estimated at more than they are worth they have seldom the value of a battle besides which it is always to be feared that the disadvantageous position to which they lead will be overlooked they are seductive through the low price which they cost we must always consider means of this description as small investments from which only small profits are to be expected as means suited only to very limited state relations and weak motives then they are certainly better than battles without a purpose than victories the results of which cannot be realized to the full end of chapter six chapter seven the offensive battle what we have said about the defensive battle throws a strong light upon the offensive also we there had in view that class of battle in which the defensive appears most decidedly pronounced in order that we might convey a more vivid impression of its nature but only the fewer number are of that kind most battles are demi recontres in which the defensive character disappears to a great extent it is otherwise with the offensive battle it preserves its character under all circumstances and can keep up that character the more boldly as the defender is out of his proper s for this reason in the battle which is not purely defensive and in the real recontres there always remains also something of the difference of the character of the battle on the one side and on the other the chief distinctive characteristic of the offensive battle is the manoeuvre to turn or surround therefore the initiative as well a combat in lines formed to envelop has evidently in itself great advantages it is however a subject of tactics the attacker must not give up these advantages because the defence has a means of countering them for the attack itself cannot make use of that means inasmuch as it is one that is too closely dependent upon other things connected with the defence 
to be able to turn to operate with success against the flanks of an enemy whose aim is to turn our line it is necessary to have a well-chosen and well-prepared position but what is much more important is that all the advantages which the defensive possesses cannot be made use of most defences are poor makeshifts the greater number of defenders find themselves in a very harassing and critical position in which expecting the worst they meet the attack halfway. the consequence of this that battles formed with enveloping lines or even with an oblique front which should properly result from an advantageous relation of the lines of communication are commonly the result of a moral and physical preponderance open brackets marengo austerlitz jena close brackets besides in the first battle fought the base of the assailant if not superior to that of the defender is still mostly very wide in extent on account of the proximity of the frontier he can therefore afford to venture a little the flank attack that is the battle with oblique front is moreover generally more efficacious than the enveloping form it is an erroneous idea that an enveloping strategic advance from the very commencement must be connected with it as at prague open bracket, that strategic measure has seldom anything in common with it and is very hazardous of which we shall speak further in the attack of a theatre of war Close bracket. as it is an object with the commander in the defensive battle to delay the decision as long as possible and gain time because a defensive battle undecided at sunset is commonly one gained therefore the commander in the offensive battle requires to hasten the decision but on the other hand there is a great risk in too much haste because it leads to a waste of forces one peculiarity in the offensive battle is the uncertainty in most cases as to the position of the enemy it is a complete grouping about amongst things that are unknown open bracket austerlitz wagram hohenlinden jena katzbach close bracket the more this is the case so much the more concentration of forces becomes paramount and turning a flank to be preferred to surrounding that the principal fruits of victory are first gathered in the pursuit we have already learnt in the twelfth chapter of the fourth book according to the nature of the thing the pursuit is more an integral part of the whole action in the offensive than in the defensive battle end of chapter seven chapter eight passage of rivers one a large river which crosses the direction of the attack is always very inconvenient for the assailant for when he has crossed it he is generally limited to one point of passage and therefore unless he remains close to the river he becomes very much hampered in his movements whether he meditates bringing on a decisive battle after crossing or may expect the enemy to attack him he exposes himself to a great danger therefore without a decided superiority both in moral and physical force a general will not place himself in such a position two from this mere disadvantage of placing a river behind an army a river is much oftener capable of defence than it would otherwise be if we suppose that this defence is not considered the only means of safety but is so planned that even if it fails still a stand can be made near the river then the assailant in his calculations must add to the resistance which he may experience in the defence of the river all the advantages mentioned in number one as being on the side of the defender of a river and the effect of the two together is that we usually see generals show great respect to a river before they attack it if it is defended three but in the preceding book we have seen that under certain conditions the real defence of a river promises right good results and if we refer to experience we must allow that such results follow in reality much more frequently than theory promises 
because in theory we only calculate with real circumstances as we find them take place while in the execution things commonly appear to the assailant much more difficult than they really are and they become therefore a greater clog on his action suppose for instance an attack which is not intended to end in a great solution and which is not conducted with thorough energy we may be sure that in carrying it out a number of little obstacles and accidents which no theory could calculate upon will start up to the disadvantage of the assailant because he is the acting party and must therefore come first into collision with such impediments let us just think for a moment how often some of the insignificant rivers of lombardy have been successfully defended if on the other hand cases may also be found in military history in which the defence of rivers has failed to realise what was expected of them that lies in the extravagant results sometimes looked for from this means results not found in any kind of way on its technical nature but merely on its well-known efficacy to which people have thought there were no bounds for it is only when the defender commits the mistake of placing his entire dependence on the defence of a river so that in case it is forced he becomes involved in great difficulty in a kind of catastrophe it is only then that the defence of a river can be looked upon as a form of defence favourable to the attack for it is certainly easier to force the passage of a river than to gain an ordinary battle five it follows of itself from what has just been said that the defence of a river may become of great value if no great solution is desired but where that is to be expected either from the superior numbers or energy of the enemy then this means if wrongly used may turn to the positive advantage of the assailant six there are very few river lines of defence which cannot be turned either on the whole length or at some particular point therefore the assailant superior in numbers and bent upon serious blows has the means of making a demonstration at one point and passing at another and then by superior numbers and advancing regardless of all opposition he can repair any disadvantageous relations in which he may have been placed by the issue of the first encounters for his general superiority will enable him to do so it very rarely happens that the passage of a river is actually tactically forced by overpowering the enemy's principal post by the effect of superior fire and greater valour on the part of the troops and the expression forcing a passage is only to be taken in a strategic sense in so far that the assailant by his passage at an undefended or only slightly defended point within the line of defence braves all the dangers which in the defender's view should result to him through the crossing but the worst which the assailant can do is to attempt a real passage at several points unless they lie close enough to each other and admit of all the troops joining in the combat for as the defender must necessarily have his forces separated therefore if the assailant fractions his in like manner he throws away his natural advantage in that way bellegarde lost the battle on the minkio eighteen fourteen where by chance both armies passed at different points at the same time and the austrians were more divided than the french seven if the defender remains on this side of the river it necessarily follows that there are two ways to gain a strategic advantage over him either to pass at some point regardless of his position and so to outbid him in the same means or to give battle in the first case the relations of the base and lines of communications should chiefly decide but it often happens that special circumstances exercise more influence than general relations he who can choose the best positions who knows best how to make his depositions who is better obeyed whose army marches fastest etc may contend with advantage against general circumstances as regard the second means it presupposes on the part of the assailant the means suitable relations and the determination to fight 
but when these conditions may be presupposed, the defender will not readily venture upon this mode of defending a river. 8. As a final result, we must therefore give as our opinion that although the passage of a river in itself rarely presents great difficulties, yet in all cases not immediately connected with great decision, so many apprehensions of the consequences and of future complications are bound up with it, that at all events the progress of the assailant may easily be so far arrested that he either leaves the defender on this side of the river or he passes and then remains close to the river for it rarely happens that two armies remain at any length of time confronting one another on different sides of a river but also in cases of a great solution a river is an important object it always weakens and deranges the offensive and the most fortunate thing in this case is that the defender is introduced through that to look upon the river as a tactical barrier and to make the particular defence of that barrier the principal act of his resistance so that the assailant at once obtains the advantage of being able to strike a decisive blow in a very easy manner certainly in the first instance this blow will never amount to a complete defeat of the enemy but it will consist of several advantageous combats and these bring about a state of general relations very adverse to the enemy as happened to the Austrians on the Lower Rhine, 1796. End of chapter 8. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.